So I have this book, uh, Mortimer J. Adler, The Ten Philosophical Mistakes, Basic Errors in Modern Thought, How They Came About, Their Consequences, and How to Avoid Them. And then part one is Consciousness and Its Objectives. And um, what do we mean by objectives? Well, uh, what is an object? Well, no, what is, what could, how could consciousness have objectives? That's the, that would be an error, wouldn't it? Because well, you would think. Yeah. I mean, who's, who created consciousness with an objective? What is the objective of the creator of consciousness? And that is a good question. I, and I doubt that he's even addressing that. So uh, the next thing is the intellect and the senses. Okay. Um, and this is an interesting thing to talk about because our intellect is often referred to as the left brain ego manifestation of who we think we are, right? And that could, that could fall into the intellect category. And then we have, um, that's opposing the senses. So we have the five senses, how, how, see, smell, taste, hear, uh, tactile, feeling. These, all these five senses are how we embody our uh, experience of beauty, outside of ourselves and within ourselves, how we take it in, how we connect with beauty. The five senses allow for us to step into beauty. You know, we can do a meditation that we, we could stop and think, um, okay, what am I feeling right now? What is this feeling? What's happening in this now moment? And then close your eyes and use your senses and say, what does it taste like? What does it smell like? What am I hearing? And what am I tactile feeling? What am I seeing? And you can put right on a piece of paper next to all your five senses what it is that's coming to your mind right now that's connecting you to the beauty of the world with and what you're feeling. Okay, you know, like, and I did this. I was instructed to do this today by my therapist, and he said, you know, do this right before you get to work, and do it again right before you leave work, and see how they compare. All right, and so I did it in the car after I left the therapist's office, and, and I wrote down. The things that I was uh, feeling and thinking and touching, and I'll list them for you. Okay, what I was when I tried to imagine what I was feeling after the therapy session, I said, "What does it taste like?" Well, it tastes like that berry that I bought on the internet that I had shipped up from South America, and this is a special berry. It has special properties. What it does is, after you eat this berry and wash it around in your mouth, it, uh, it confuses your taste buds to think that something sour is sweet. And so I started eating limes and lemons and anything that was sour. And it, it still retained a certain uh, tartness that it could be detected. The bitterness was still there. It wasn't gone completely. But there was a sweetness that wasn't there before. And so th- it was an incredible experience to be able to taste the, the sweetness of a lime, the sweetness of all of these different um, sour-tasting things that you normally would be kind of you recoil, your taste buds kind of recoil from, you know, the bitterness of it. But this time, the bitterness was just a hint, and what was overpowering was this sugar feeling, this this amazing sweetness. It was different. It was like a whole different experience, like something you never tasted before. And, and that connect that, having that sensation is rare. And, you know, it only happened to me once in my life. And that's the, and when I was thinking about how I felt after the therapy session, that's what I, that's what I was tasting. If I could say that the feeling was manifest as a taste, that's the taste that comes to mind. Okay. And it was a beautiful thing. Right. And then when I think about what I'm touching, I thought about it. I said, what do I, what is this feeling I have and how does it connect to my senses? And then I thought touching, it reminded me of when I was with my father 
gathering fiddlehead ferns and morale mushrooms along a river along a river in Alaska and it was raining and we stood behind a tree to wait for the rain to stop because it was like downpouring but it was only for a short time and after it was over I remember touching the bark of the tree and it was wet from the dew or the rain and it had such an amazing feeling to it and that's the feeling that came to my mind and it embodied all of the that experience the beauty of the being with my father and and, and feeling that joy of a little boy with his father in the woods collecting mushrooms that kind of feeling it came back to me as i as i started to connect with my body and my senses and then i thought about what I was seeing, and I thought, I remember being in an airplane, looking out the window and seeing these clouds, these puffy clouds below me, and I thought to myself, wow, that's like, I feel like I'm in heaven, this is so beautiful, it's magnificent, it's beyond words, and that, that seeing came back to my mind, seeing those clouds out the window of the airplane, you know, and then I thought about, what is it, what am I feeling right now after this therapy session, what am I feeling, and, and how do I express that and, and connect with it in my, with my senses of, of taste, uh, so I did that, the, the senses of seeing, I did that, and then the scenes of touch, and then I thought of smell, what was the smell, and I remember that I was homeless and living in a tent, and I asked this woman if we could, if we could put our tent in her yard, and she agreed to let us spend the night by putting the tent in her yard, and I was going to I was going to cut her grass the next day because her grass needed to be cut and she was an older woman and she didn't have... So that was my payment for letting her stay. So did you cut her grass? I didn't because uh, a situation erupted later that she she basically asked us to leave. And and so um, because of some uh, drama that unfolded. Oh, but before... Uh... Before the drama unfolded, I remember like when we were setting up the tent, there was this tree on her property, and it had this blossom, and I don't know what it was, honeysuckle or something, but when I smelled this blossom, the flower was so pungent and so powerful, and it, it kind of reminded me of semen. It had a, like a flavor or a taste of semen, and it like it caused me to a sexual arousal, like an erotic kind of response. I felt an erotic sense of responding to this to the fragrance of this flower. I felt it in my body. You know what I'm saying? Like when you when there's a sexual arousal, there's a physiological change. Chemicals are released in your brain. You start to feel this erotic thing, and I the flower triggered that. And so that's the that's the smell that came back to me after this oh therapy my session. Word. Yeah, and um, so. The um, uh, and and there was I think what sense am I missing? I've got the the touch, the taste, uh, the sight. So what on earth is the sexual flower? Oh man, I'm telling you that I I had to avoid it because the smell was like, you know, it was turning it was it turned me on in a way. You know what I mean? Is that a tree? It was a tree with a flower. Yeah, it was like a tall tree, but the flower was there. Is it, was, it a purple? I don't know, man. I, I asked her and she told me that I should have wrote it down, but I forgot. But see, this, when you connect with your senses and step into beauty, um, you can do that at any time through this exercise, right? It's an exercise to enter into beauty. And what you're doing is you're exiting the intellect, right? And, the, and so he's comparing and contrasting intellect and senses in chapter 2. And that resonates with me based on what happened today and what I just uh, expressed to you. And then third, words and meaning. Okay, words and meaning. Now, this is very interesting because, you know, words are a product of the left brain we think. I mean, in other words, people will tell you that a language is left brain activity. But when I was in my therapy session today, he told me that he doesn't, that that's not true. He said that, that he, there's a uh, psychiatrist or somebody who wrote a book who explains that 
um, words are actually metaphors, and it's the right brain that's doing the language thing with the metaphors. What the right, what the left brain does is then convert the metaphors into practical, literal meanings, right? So if you talk about laws and rules, that's a left brain activity. But the actual language, the manifestation of words, is always metaphor. We talk about, I'm going to sleep on it, or why don't you, um, you know,、um, how do you feel? And you say, well, I feel like I got. Drug in like a, like a, something the cat drug in. You know you speak in metaphors. And similar. Yes, and all language is that way. Originally, every word was a metaphoric concept that was being articulated, and the left brain then takes all these metaphors and rearranges so them. That's where we get all this idiomatic phrases,、mm-hmm. right? Literally meaningful, exactly. Well, the metaphors are meaningful. Well, I mean, when you translate it. Well, that's right. So when the when the metaphor becomes a word, that be, it's weaponized. You see what I'm saying? You're taking the the right brain creates the metaphoric language, and the left brain meta,、uh, weaponizes it, so it can be used against somebody. That's what's going on. It's fascinating.、Um, so then the fourth chapter is knowledge and opinion. Okay. Now, how do we compare and contrast knowledge and opinion? If we talk about knowledge with a capital K, we're talking about Gnostic, esoteric knowing, right? It's the difference between Which is, comes from source. Comes from source.、Yeah. Now, then opinion. Where does that come from? That's not coming from source, and it's not coming from the metaphoric right brain. It's opinion is is when you've taken a metaphoric term and you. Weaponized it. That's an now you're using that as a weapon. To that's an opinion, right? So we're attached to our opinions. We're attached to our、uh, definitions of words that are going to be weaponized and used against others. This is the uh, uh, ego well, doing the. An opinion is like a reduction of of a, an amalgam of judgments boiled down, right? Kind of summed up, I guess. Right. So you know, Buddha's teaching was to. Relinquish your views. In other words, to let go of your opinions. And he said that one of the main causes of dukkha or suffering or、uh, unsatisfaction in the world is that we are attached to opinions. And he didn't use the word opinions; he used the word views. You know, that's how it's translated. He says, "Relinquish your views. Let go of your views." Okay, and that's a challenge for people, especially who are analytical left brain mentality people. You tell them to let go of their views and their opinions. It's like telling them to change the color of their skin. Well, what you could express that you could express it another way and say instead of looking at your views, look at with Christ's vision. You know, see differently, see another world. Rather than, I mean, your views are just a confirmation. Of you know this world making it real in your mind, and rather than making it real, you actually want to release it and step back and avoid making it real by realizing I'm actually looking past things. I'm not con- terribly concerned with what it seems to be here because I know there's distortion and I know there's lack of love, and I know that I will fall into distortion and lack of love by focusing. On this, what I have to do is expert for Christ's vision to be able to see clearly. What am I seeing clearly? You know, the other, another world where unconditional love is present, and that's all there is. So 
I'm trying to return to a place of seeing, you know, without judgment and without lack of love. So that's I, I, where my views, you know, that would occupy me and distract me from actually seeing with Christ's vision, I'd be looking at my views, which would be a consolidation of what I had concluded about, you know, my from my distorted perception, you know, and I'd be trying to make those perceptions real, which the Course says they're not. And if I make them real, it's only in my mind they become real, and that reinforces my, reinforces my sense of separation and my sense of my habit energy of not going to spirit to see clearly. Show me the world I want to see. Well, that's what you're doing. That's what you're doing. In a, when, you, when you consolidate views and you think, well, that's, of course I will have views. Of course I will make a conclusion. But that's how I live in the world. That's how we all live in the world. We need to understand what's good and bad and what uh, we should advocate for and against. So we can figure, yeah, I can have a view and I should have a view. But it mustn't become distracting. And it must be... I think that we're going to have to have some views about some things, like, you know, do I favor this or that type of a category of behaviors or whatever, but like abortion. What do you think about abortion? Do you have a view about abortion? What do you have a, as far as collecting fetal uh, material, you know, from abortions to, or companies to sell or to uh, put in Pepsi-Cola or, or some Or makeup. You know, yeah. women put this fatal... They don't yeah. even know. Yeah. It's in the makeup yeah. and they're putting it on their face yeah. to, to make themselves attractive to men. Now, isn't that an upside-down world where you're rubbing dead bodies? Red, well, rubbing it's an upside-down world where the company will voice that on you, and they would know that you wouldn't want it, but they'll actually sell it to you for a good price. Good oh, yeah. Price. Oh, yeah. Until you lighten your Lighten your pockets of quite a bit of weight, you know, and to have give you something that you wouldn't want. Yeah, they, they, they appeal to you on the salience aspect. If you rub this on your face, then men will want to have sex with you. The same thing is... Rubbing dead cheap, bodies on your face. Yeah, it said that cheap, uh, cheap colognes, really, cheap copies, you know, you got a cheap copy for $2 of yeah. a classic cologne, and it said that this can contain, uh, or some of these cheap body sprays, and they can contain, like, be based on ammonia or cat urine or horse urine or something. I mean... I don't know what exactly. It has all these types of stuff in it. You know, and you don't really want to put that on your skin, do you? Well, you know, it's just it's just an upside-down world when this kind of thing is just accepted as, uh, you know, situation normal. Would, would, you put, would you put some animal urine on your face? Well, Let if it's... Just slap it on my face. Yeah, but if it's sold to me through an advertisement, well, not only sold, but you you accept the idea. Yeah, when this is when I, when this smell is on my face, from however whatever it's made of, I don't care, because people find it attractive. People will. Uh, I want to be uh, admired and respected and all of this. So yeah, the pheromones. Well. It's the pheromones. Yeah, yeah. 
You know, you're going to use cat urine as a pheromone to attract a female. If need be. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. It's so unbelievable. So what we were talking about is uh, knowledge and opinions. Okay. So uh, opinions are, uh, from the Buddhist perspective, views. And this is one of the chief causes of suffering in the world. So Buddha's first uh, primary uh, theme, in if you read the original, uh, the Book of Eights, which is, was only translated into English uh, a year ago, and so, but if you read that book, it's known to be by scholars the oldest sutra available. And it's strange that it hadn't been translated into English yet, but this is one of the oldest sutras known to exist. And so, it contains the original teachings of Buddha. And what's interesting is you don't find the the, the, the four noble truths, and you don't find the eightfold path. It's not there. Then, then what are the eight? I thought that was the four and the four and four. Made yeah, the but. Eight. Some people have concluded that this came later and was not... Right. I've heard this argument. So what is the eight? Well, you know, right this and right this and right this, right living, right thinking, right relationships, right... So the, they include the Four Noble and, and the right, but they weren't called that. Well, there's the Four Noble Truths, but the fourth one is this path of liberation, which is the Eightfold Path. Okay, so really... Um, this, the Four Noble Truths is just leading you into this Eightfold Path, okay? And so it's been theorized that this was a later development and not something that Buddha himself was teaching and that it became a prescription uh, that embodies his teaching that was formulated later. But the original sutra doesn't contain it. There's no reference to it. But what it does talk about is letting go of your views, detaching from views. Okay. I, I can move about in this room without clutter, and over there on the wall are my views. They're like hanging on the wall. I can walk through here. I can see them. I don't. They're not that important to me. Nothing in this room is that important to me. I'm just able to come and go. I'm able to move through it, walk in and out, and with a great fluidity. I'm able to see the room that I'm in, but I'm not able to see it clearly because my Using perception, I'm seeing the past. My perception is distorted. I don't know what anything means. All of these things are true according to the course, and they, according to me, they are. I've experienced all of this. It's true. So, even though your mind balks at it at the beginning when you first hear anything, that's impossible. But you realize going on. Uh, so then, you don't want to get too caught up. You don't want to get overtaken, you know, by... You want to function within the world because that's where you seem to find yourself. But you want to realize where your power and your identity lies. Where your wholeness and where your bliss lie. And you don't want to get lost in something that is less than that needlessly. That will cut you off from your memory of your power and your... But people get attached to their ideas. I know that I'm guilty of that. I can, like, if somebody attacks my ideas, I feel like they're attacking me. It becomes very personal, yeah. And part of this is because of the chemical-mediated emotions that arise. Your adrenaline flows if, if somebody raises this and you're getting all huffy and you're, oh my gosh, well, you know, the, this 
election, this candidate, this statement of this platform, whatever it is, this party, they're making me mad, they're making me uh, jump up and down and get all frenzied and foaming in the mouth, and my emotions are being recorded in some part of my cellular structure somewhere in my person, and uh, the, the chemicals are flowing, and I'm feeling very uh, fulsome right now. You know, it's just like I'm enlarged by I'm feeling powerful and I'm feeling important and I'm feeling like my ideas are central and my I'm giving myself some feeling of having some worth and some insight and some uh, 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 wisdom and all this. And so you're you're building yourself up with this, and of course, of course, you like that that moment. Of course, it is very uh, salient. So you want to revisit that from time to time. Whenever you, whenever you hear that uh, whole discussion, you can just move right back into it and get a fresh, chem- chemically me- mediated visit into all of this ego stuff. Yeah, it's like a, it's like you're addicted to the drama. So you. Oh yeah. Yeah, and and this explains a lot of why people are in conflict. And some people, you know. Um, I was talking to my therapist about how it was like working in the restaurant. He he shared a story. He said he worked in a restaurant once, and he said that the servers didn't like it when you had they had a family that came in that were polite and and everything. He said they they really liked it when somebody was uh, a jerk or mean because that gave them something to uh, complain about and to you know. And I just find that to be so interesting. What a what an observation. Now the we're talking about the ten philosophical mistakes. This is the book by. Um, by Mortimer J. Adler. And so now I'm moving on to his fifth chapter, and he titles this Moral Values. So now we're talking about philosophical mistakes. What could be the philosophical mistake as it relates to moral values? What do you suppose that is? We haven't read the book. We're just absorbing it through osmosis. Well, I would think that the main mistake there is doing versus being. So we're in a place of probably the left brain, and so we're in a place of thinking about... We're not in a place of beauty, we're in a, either in a place of structure, or we're in a place of rebellion against structure, or at least trying to uh, recoil from our addiction to structure. <laughs> you know, the thing is that when you do step into beauty... Um, you're no longer antagonistic or hostile to those previous states. Right, right. You know, because you recognize... That's rec- absolutely key. Yeah. So you you basically start to learn uh, to value and appreciate structure for what it is and accept it for what it is. You learn to appreciate and value skepticism for what it is. You see both of these things as necessary in society. And, and you it- realize that perhaps they were necessary in your own experience just to get where you are. You had to, like, the path went through there and you right. just had to to take the, the path to go on the trip yeah because the, it was a progression that's right it's like Pilgrim's Progress yeah. Pilgrim's did Progress did you make a response to that message I did okay so now he moves on in the 10 philosophical mistakes to part 2 and the chapter 6 is titled happiness and contentment okay now contentment is the opposite of dukkha because when Jesus, when Buddha said that life is life is suffering, the actual word was dukkha, mm-hmm. and that could be translated as discontent. Mm-hmm. So uh, when 
Adler talks about comparing and contrasting happiness with contentment. What do you suppose the difference is? Well, when I crossed over, I would say that the, you know, happiness kind of is a more of a long term. You know, like I, I, I'm just so fulfilled, and I feel really happy, feel really good about the whole picture, where I am, and what I'm doing, and what my life is about. It just gives me a certain happiness. Okay, but when you, when you're just looking at your immediate. Oh, I arrived on the scene. This is what I'm feeling, seeing, and doing, and and experiencing, and it's just tremendous contentment. Perfect, perfect, perfect contentment. Since I have all all I could imagine, all I need, all I want, I know now that this is what I always wanted. I know that this was always my identity always will be and it's so wonderful it's so it's so including me and drawing me in and I want more oh that's yeah but I'm not discontented by not having more because I will I know that I will I'll always have this I'll always have it more yeah it's perfect contentment therefore it's a steady state right and it says it says I am in a state of bliss in a steady state. That's contentment. Right. So, and the word that's used uh, in Eastern thought is nirvana. Yeah. That's so, what's the difference between contentment and nirvana, really. It's the same thing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, nirvana and contentment, that's how we could translate it. Now, um, Technicon, who's the Buddhist monk from Viet- Vietnam who lives in, uh, at, uh, what is it, uh, somewhere in France? Deer Park. Deer Park. Okay. He, he always, when he uh, makes reference to dukkha, he always puts nirvana next to it. Because he, he feels yeah, like... He puts... He, Tignatron. He puts, he, puts, he puts what next to what? Dukkha and nirvana. He, he, oh, puts, yeah. he okay. puts these together. Okay. Because he, he thinks it's a philosophical mistake to emphasize dukkha. Because, you, you know, the thing is that Buddhism is not about... Um, uh, trying to overcome the bad that's what Christianity is about rather it's tr- it's about removing anything that would uh, deny you bliss or happiness or peace or joy or, or contentment or you know what I mean so it's it's like recognizing that there's things in yourself that are obstacles to enlightenment and removing those obstacles so that the bliss that's already present in the world in the now moment can be experienced right that's their view because well, you're basic good things that are going to need to be Mode from your experience are like what the Course refers to as obstacles to love. Right. Okay, obstacles to love are nailed into place and firmly kept there by the ego and all of its attempt to master every situation and take, a, take the mastery away from you if you actually want to depart from the ego. Uh-huh. It's going to try to nail you down along with its theses about every how everything should be, it's going to try to hold you captive to, you know, the things that are keeping the obstacles to peace in place. Well, the key word there is should, because the ego will put out the should, 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 should. And when you start allowing that in your self-talk, that's a source of anger. And, of course, that's the opposite of being content. So people think that happiness means to... 
uh, get what they want or what they think they should have, make the world the way it should be instead of the way it is. So there's this constant well, these pushing are not against them. I mean, there's a number of obstacles to peace. There's a number of ways this course lays out that this happens. Yeah. And it's all, it's all of these patterns of behavior that, that create obstacles to peace that make it impossible for us just to go over the wall and just transcend and be gone, you know, from uh, from Dukkha. You know, but I mean, we're going to have to realize that we probably... First of all, one thing about Buddhism is it seems to me, okay, God has never spoken to about directly. It's like the elephant in the room. But we're just having an assumption that there's solve for X, it's there when we don't need to go any further with that. But then, what comes to mind for me is the ego is believing and and committed to a belief in separation. This has to be addressed. This has to be understood. We have to understand, you know, the idea of separation, that we're committed to it, that we're, that it's false, that it's impossible, that it's a distortion, that it's sending us careening down a different trajectory, uh, let's say false and synthetic one for us, and away from our true beingness, and away from our joining with God Most High, and away from our uh, sense of community with all the rest of creation. You've said it beautifully, and so we can sum that all up as... uh, uh, Discontent, or or the or the all the factors that would prevent you from experiencing contentment. It's it's the uh, it's the okay. When we compare and contrast happiness and contentment, what we're saying is that you can accept the false reality of separation, and within that paradigm, which is a, based on a false premise, you can seek happiness, and you may find it from time to time. Because it's really, in your point of view, getting what you want. But a lot of times you don't get what you want because you think things should be different than they are. So happiness is fleeting because a lot of things are not the way you think they should be. And that makes you unhappy. And you can't make them that way. And you can't avoid compromising away what you think it should be. You have to make compromises against that and keep on compromising and pushing back. You know, so, so how, you have moments of if, happiness. If we, if we can't look at the question of, you know, the, the ego is trying to force us into a concept of separate, an experience of separation that's going to justify itself, the ego's perspective and the ego's intentions and the ego's behavior. You know, it's, it's the concept of separation is going to be the foundation for all the ego lays out and tries to build, mm-hmm. our purpose for as a course student is actually to tear all of that down. Right. Rip it out. Right. Okay. But so how, if we can't address the elephant in the room, okay, how are we actually going to overcome? And well, you're you're saying in Buddhism we're not even going to overcome. We're just going to actually focus on contentment and go to contentment. So what we've got to do then is have a sense of at one We have to have, without 
thinking specifically of the atonement, we're going to get at one mint. And I'm not sure we... This would be a big, heavy discussion how this even is going to happen. Yeah. But, I mean, to simplify it, and, and, and when we compare and contrast happiness with contentment, contentment is... Uh, means that you've stepped into beauty, okay? But happiness... But how did you get there? Uh-huh. That's a, how did yeah. you... How did you... How did, you That's didn't overcome... Question. You didn't overcome the concept of separation. You didn't overcome the ego. You didn't push it back. You didn't do mind training specifically to deal with it. You did mind training of meditation, and maybe meditation informed you that there was the ego and there was a, a false sense of separation there as part of the Maya, and then you could say, you know, I really don't want to host that, I recognize it's there, I'm not going to judge it, I'm not going to uh, yeah. freak out about it, I'm just going to focus on, you know, realizing oneness is there, and I'm, it's, it's available, and that's what I'm moving into. Yeah, well part of that in Buddhist teaching is compassion. Right. So compassion is well, the you door. you have to do it with it. Do all of everything you have to give compassion to yourself as my treat. Yeah. And compassion to all living beings. So you're willing to say, yeah, there's Maya, and I'm I've had some deceptions, and I'm I can overcome, get through the mists, penetrate the mists, and be able to see what's real, and and actually move toward it. And desire that, and then you're the the compassion is saying, you know, I'm not going to kick myself around the room because I didn't do this in some situation or some time, or others because they didn't do it. You know, and from my view, you know, I mean, compassion really, compassion. Whether you're looking at Buddhist compassion or compassion. From a Christian point of view, I still think that that phrase, that was then, this is now, applies to compassion. That just says, forget that. It's gone. It's down. It's water under the bridge. It isn't relevant. It might, it's, is it salient? You've got to look at whether it's salient to you. Am I, am I trying to go down the river after that? Going under the bridge and down the river, trying to catch up to it and bring it back because it's salient for me because I don't want to let it go right it's I subscribe me I, I attach meaning to that and I can't lose it it's loaded and so it's somewhat precious my precious is getting away from me. <laughs> okay so the thing is you if you if it, if you say it's gone let it go bye okay then where are you you're without without these little things that uh, justify the ego, once again, you've ripped them out by saying, you know, that was then, this is now, and I'm in the present. And that's what Buddhism is doing, is saying, I'm in the present. Yeah. I'm, that's what compassion is doing, yeah. is saying, I'm not, and nobody's at fault, and nobody's blaming and pointing fingers and feeling things towards people and having to forgive things because of the way that it fell out. It fell out that way, but that was then, this is now. So we just, it's, it's not, it's like forgiveness is where we are. 
we are forgiveness right now. We are in compassion. We, we're letting all that go and we're not blaming and we're not uh, holding a, a grudge or a grievance. There's no grievance huh. in compassion. Right. Yeah, so compassion is the doorway into uh, content, content, uh, what's the word? Contentment. Contentment, okay. So happiness doesn't, it doesn't really, uh, it's like a different thing altogether. There's, it's not, the entryway into happiness is getting what you want or what you think you want. You know, securing your Well, and on the other side, you can say, you know, happiness is kind of like, I just like the way things are. I just feel good about it. I feel optimistic. I like thing, the way things are shaking out. And, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so there is a difference. Now, um, in the Ten Philosophical Mistakes, the seventh chapter is freedom of choice. Now, freedom of choice, uh, I guess he's challenging the idea of freedom of choice. A lot of philosophers have done that. Well, on this side, from from a course perspective, you kind of give away your freedom of choice. And the more you uh, go down the rabbit hole from the perspective of the uh, polyvagal theory, because uh, of your fear, which the course says is really binding you, you know, then the more fear you have, the, and the more you participate in fear effect, the more fear you have. The and you get into trauma. That trauma causes your person to shut down, and, and your awareness and your cognitive function to be very restricted. You know, then you're gonna you're gonna feel like you uh, just do not have. Gonna, you're going to become enraged at the idea that you have freedom of will. You're going to say, I, I don't have, I wasn't free. I didn't have any other choice. You're trying to tell me I made a choice. Or you're trying to tell me I have a choice. This wasn't a choice. See what I mean? Right. At that point, where's the freedom of will? Yeah. Right. So this is uh, interesting. Uh, you could go, you could talk about that for some time. This whole idea of freedom of choice. So let me ask you, on this side, um, you know, there's some, you know, we, 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 we talk about liberty, we talk about freedom, but these are somewhat fraudulent ideas in terms of what they, uh, can you achieve freedom? Is that really uh, possible? Because there's so many unseen forces at work that are... Um, well, if you, have, if you have a hundred years war and you kill enough people and yeah. they're all dead and they're not in conflict with you, I guess... And you don't have any conflict in your mind about that, then maybe you're free. Well, is that true? Uh, no, peace and war. You know, um, you know, what is peace? Is it the absence of war? Is that what we're trying to achieve? Well, and we have learned on this side that peace is a relative meaning. It has a relative meaning. It's a relative term that indicates that conflict is like to a dull roar or to a. Right. What we accept is a minimum. Yeah. We'll call that a minimum. Yeah. Yeah. If, if somebody. Is it absent? No, it can't be absent. But right. it's kind of like okay because we can just. It's at a level we can deal with. We're used to that. Yeah, you turn down the decibels. Right. You know, lower the volume. Yeah. yeah. So if, if, if somebody is like uh, freaking out, you know, some, sometimes people will say, volume, volume. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's like telling yeah. the person, okay, yeah, calm, yeah. instead of saying calm down, yeah. 
they say volume, volume. I like that, you know, because if we can reduce the volume of the drama, then it becomes tolerable, it becomes bearable. You know what I mean? We just don't. The volume is what's annoying. You know, we can we can tolerate a certain ambient pain in others and in ourselves, but when they turn the volume up, then and that, then and then and then when we have that ambient pain and it's turned down to the level that we're calling for, then we call that peace. Right. So, in the context, this idea of freedom of choice is very limited. Like the freedom of choice is operating within the context of all of this ambient pain. Yeah, and we don't even see. We don't. We're not. We're not even. Once it's turned down, yeah, we don't care about the ambient pain. It's just like we've compromised out so much already that. It's just like, yeah, that's going to be there. I understand that's going to be there, and I will just work with it. And then that's peace. But when I was, you know, first uh, learning about, you know, ancient Semitic spirituality, spiritual science, then it was pointed out to me, you know, that I did not know what peace meant, that I had never known peace and I never had really sought as a purpose, had a clear intention to experience true peace. And this was a revelation to me from the very instant my jaw dropped because I realized, of course, this is true. How did that happen? How did I miss that? I didn't even value peace enough to seek it. You know, and I didn't mind that that my whole experience of peace was totally compromised. Never cared. It's like, what can I do about it? <laughs> right, again, the compromise. We'll just have as much peace as we can. We'll do the best we can. Compromise. Yeah. That's what it is, the name of the game. So, and we're calling this freedom of choice. Well, what's the choice? The choice is to compromise? It is, so often. Look how often it is. That's the choice. It's a choice between less than. It's a choice between not-so-good things. Yeah, how many... candidate, do you want this? No, I don't. Do you want this candidate to win? No, I don't. Well, you're going to have to go vote for one of them, which are, oh, I'll vote for the one that I, I least, you know, don't want to win. Well, they, they say, you hear this phrase all the time... That's right. That's right. You hear the phrase all the time, the, the lesser of the two evils. You know, that's who people vote for, the lesser of the two evils. And this is called freedom of choice. That's what we have. Okay. But on the other side, what does freedom look like? On the other side, freedom actually is a self-affirmation. Now, you talk about, what's that word you like to have here? Validation. Validation. I say you because I just can't comprehend it and I can't remember it and I can't think of it no matter how or when I try. It just doesn't register and my mind is meaningful. But the on the other side, the equivalent of validation is actually self-affirmation. It's not the small self, it's not the ego self because that's gone. Right. It's not there. Right. And it, you don't care that it's not there. It it's like, well, it's a you don't know that it ever was there, and right. you don't care that it doesn't matter, matter, matter. So, on the other side, what is the self? It's the higher self. That's the self. That's all that there is. Okay? 
But at the same time, there is a detachment possible from higher self when you first arrive and you say, well, I'm on the scene and I'm experiencing what my higher self is and I'm with my higher self, but wow, I just got here and I like it, but I'm afraid of it. I'm afraid that, you know, I can't function the way this is because I'm not, I don't have any, I'm not used to this. You don't feel equipped to deal with the liberty. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, it's very fulfilling. Yeah. It's totally, totally, everything that was ever talked about self-realization or, uh, you know, Maslow's hierarchy, and he talked about, uh, you know, uh, any kind of fulfillment that the self was ever to achieve. Okay, that's what is there. That's what's going on, and more. Because it's it's more because of the sense of, like, I'm being included. I, I Like, wow, how I've never experienced this. I'm being valued, I'm being loved, and I feel that. And I'm being cherished, and I'm a part of, and I'm an integrated in, and thoroughly, thoroughly built into this. And I've never experienced this, and I've, I mean, talk about wanting to be respected, talking about all of these things that we want on this side, and you've got it all there, and you know it. So, you're absolutely self-realization to the hilt, instantly. So that's, that's what is meant by freedom. Right. Free, you're free of want, and we're not talking even about, you know, physical want. We're talking about something much, much more compelling than that. We're talking about mental and, and, and spiritual want. Right. So, uh, and, and the, those have been the difficult ones in the physical. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, you know, you can struggle for fulfillment in the physical, and but it's never truly experienced until you cross over. You might be, you say you need food, and you can... You could be hungry for a while, and finally you go and get some food. Okay, but all along, you're not getting your mental needs, your your emotional, your spiritual needs met. You know, and uh, well, there is a hunger there too. There, there is a hunger, and it's a biting, uh, ongoing need that you try to suppress the awareness of it. But in the background, you know that's part of your discontent. Right. Yeah. Exactly right. So yeah. you can't do anything about it. You can go get your food, but there are situations you cannot change. I don't know when or how the situation is going to change, you say. I don't see how I can, you know, bring about an action or an arc of action that leads into a uh, resolution of, you know, this being compromised. So, and this and that and the other. Uh, because... You know, I, there are things I cannot change. There are things I cannot affect. Yeah. Well, like, for example, we're facing an economic crisis with this coronavirus, and a lot of people are saying that the economy of this country is forever going to be changed. We might be entering a, a period of socialism, fascism, communism. Use your, you know, pick your vice. It doesn't really, you know what I mean? You can label it any way you want to, but it's going to be a fundamental change in, this, in, in how the structure system works. But the thing is... What you're saying 
is people are, you know, you, you can't, there's things you cannot change, you know, but you can still find contentment and spiritual fulfillment and enter into beauty, regardless of whether you're living under a communist government or a capitalist government. You it can, and they found this in Tibet, even after the Chinese took it over. Yeah. You have to realize this. Yeah. But the, the thing, they may, they don't like it, the fact that the Chinese took it over, they, they'd like that to change, but they can still go within and they can still experience peace, you know, and harmony and bliss. Uh, how is this possible? The thing is, it happens because they are not afraid of their power to experience this, and they're not afraid of love, okay? Mm, mm. They're not afraid of who they are, of right. their identity. Right. But for us, when we uh, try to experience you know, what we experience in the world of what we call freedom and what we call peace, and we move about in the ways we do on this side and let the ego be in control. He's the, uh, the, uh, what, the alpha male in right. the room. Right, Okay, then... <laughs> <laughs> let me share with the audience that's listening because they don't know the reference. I was telling the story about what it was like to be in jail, and I was in a pod, and, you know, there was one alpha male who was in charge, and then somebody else stepped in and announced he was the alpha male in charge. And the other dude just kind of backed down and let him take it. And because he knew he was going to be getting out of jail in a couple of days. And he didn't really want to fight over it. So he took he stepped down. And it was, it was a peaceful transition. The regime change. Okay. Then I saw another regime change that wasn't peaceful. There was an actual conflict. And one of the guys had to leave the pod. They, he, had to, he had to get out of there. And so... There, but this one alpha male I was friends with, you know, because I became uh, a confidant, a friend to him, and that protected me. Nobody messed with me because I, they knew I was I was uh, copacetic with the alpha male. So that's kind of the dynamic that was happening in jail that I experienced, uh, having spent several several months in there. Okay, so this is I had to survive, and that was my survival technique. That was my method of survival. So, um, what did you just say? The alpha male is the in the room. That's the, the, that's the ego. That's the ego. He's, 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 he, see, the concept of alpha male, I jokingly have told people in different situations, you know, hey, I'm the alpha male, you know, because, <laughs> you know, I'm not trying to throw ego around. I mean, that I, that people can chide me after this. I keep saying, you said you were the alpha male. <laughs> <laughs> Never let me forget it. I remember you said that. Okay, so... <laughs> but what it means, really, is I just... I'm not trying to enforce anything. I'm not trying to be anything. I'm just... This is just falling out the way it does. It's just natural. Right. You, well, know? you know, it's funny you said that, because you know what the next chapter is? Chapter 8? Human nature. It, everything that we've talked about kind of leads into that. So... When he talks about human nature, now this is the what I'm going to raise now is the the different worldview from a Buddhist versus Christian perspective, and that fundamentally is that Christians believe in the sinful nature, and that informs them as to how the world should be. Okay, but conversely, you have the Eastern. How long have Christians believed in the sinful nature? Well, I think Augustine was the one to articulate it, but but it also Do is... the Gnostics believe in the sinful nature? No, but the Apostle Paul also articulated the sinful nature. Well, did he really? What, how did he? Well, he said the, in Acts chapter 11, verse... He says, what I, what, I, 
what let me quote it for you. Yeah. Um, it was it was uh, Galatians five nineteen. He said acts of the sinful nature are obvious, you know. And then he listed sexual immorality, impurity, uh, debauchery, factions, uh, drunkenness, uh, lasciviousness, and the list goes on and on. So he used the word sinful nature. Yes. He said the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Okay. So that had that as that was basically the foundation for a theology. And you can say that uh, that Paul was the first Christian theologian, I guess you might say. And so well, from to me, to me, he was the founder of Pollyanity, but Right. So you but then it became Austinianity, right? When Augustine came along, he kind of took some Platon uh, he took he mixed different ideas, pagan ideas and some uh, other ideas that he had already um, he was hosting in his mind, and he then converted them into Christian dogma and Christian doctrine that has really stood the test of time because they were being enforced by an institution, and they're really deeply embedded until the Reformation came along and tried to challenge some of these ideas. You know, Martin Luther and others who wanted to push back against this theology and said that it was not, it didn't, it didn't uh, read, when they read the scripture in English, once they had the English version of the Bible, then they started reading it for themselves and saying, wait a minute, we're going to, there's something corrupt here going on, and we're going to separate. Well, that, that was true. They saw, they saw corruption, but they didn't see corruption in the idea of the sinful nature. Correct. So that, that whole thing is deeply embedded in the, in the Christian theology, dating right back to the letter to the Galatians by Apostle Paul. So it has evolved over time, and basically what uh, people are uh, uh, conditioned and led to believe is that they had that they're in a sinful state that the the Adam and Eve born into sin born into sin and that they're they've they're, never known anything but sin right so the whole life is nothing but a struggle with your sinful nature okay and so to, to present this idea that I guess the the way if you if you really look at that just objectively look at that shouldn't you get some kudos shouldn't you get a pat on the back little star on the forehead for even struggling against your nature at all all my life I've been struggling against my nature shouldn't that bring some kind of praise well it's interesting that the word Israel is translated as struggling with God right this is what it means and so you uh, so now bring that into the mix of the sinful nature and the whole struggle with your sinful nature see the the story was wasn't it Jacob who wrestled with the angel, mm-hmm. and then it be, he was given the name Israel, and this that means one who struggles with God. So this has become the deep identity of Christians is that they see themselves as people who struggle with God and struggle with their sinful nature. And I don't there's not a much of a difference between the two concepts. The idea of struggling with God means I'm struggling with my sinful nature. But the idea okay, of struggling with somewhere somewhere we need to do some cleanup. Right. Yeah, it's messy. There's a lot of there's. A, I mean, you're living in a messy condition. It's very messy. Okay. Now, when you look at the Eastern philosophy, it's it it builds on the foundation of your Buddha nature or your basic goodness. Okay. And so it's a very different approach to dealing with uh, the obstacles to enlightenment. Um, you know, removing the obstacles to enlightenment. You know, uh, removing your attachment to views um, and other attachments. Right. So. Uh, and, and and part of this of, of detaching from you know the furniture in, in the room and that that provides all of your environment you're 
realizing that you are not. This is not your identity. This isn't, you're not going to make this your identity or allow it to become your identity. There might be a human nature, but that's not your identity. Is right. that what you're saying? Right. Okay. So that's like a huge, huge, huge thing. And it really gets down to, I mean, if you want to talk about theology, theology is all built on the concept of sin and how you deal with sin. If, if you don't have, if, if you're an Orthodox Christian, then and you and somebody presents to you a theology, you you want to see if it's true or not. You have to boil it down to the, the question of sin. So that's all. That's what theology is built around: the concept of sin. Now, what you're saying is like completely different paradigm shift because you're saying, okay, yes, there's this human nature, uh, but that includes the biology of chemicals being released. It includes the polyvagal, you know, shutdown. It includes. It includes, you know, the punk, you know, that's jumping up to be slapped down, which is the ego. The alpha male. It includes all of these, you know, the left brain doing what it does, separation, belief in separation, this attempt to find happiness and saying that the world should be different than it is. All of these, and there's there's all these uh, dark forces aligned against you. There's all these unseen forces. There's all these influences. And I, I'm not, you could be under the influence not just of alcohol and drugs, but you can be under the influence of many things. Jealousy, rage. You have a list of grievances that creates bitterness. And on and on and on. So what we're talking about here is, again, this idea of you having freedom of choice. Where's the freedom of choice within that mixture? I could stop anybody. Anywhere, if they would comply, if they would, if I could invite them to say, sit down, I'd like to do an assessment on you, I'd like you to do a self-assessment right now, just sit down and go within, tell me just all the things that are coming up for you, you know, what kind of blames you're thinking about, what kind of grievances, what kind of uh, hurts, what kind of narrative and story, what kind of uh, lack and loss and preoccupation with death and how are all these things coming as thoughts across your mind screen right now mm-hmm. you know to what extent are you aware of these if you when you go within and you know what are what are your feelings of of enmity or your feelings of conflict or your feelings of uh, bitterness or your feelings of uh, where is the dukkha exactly pinpoint uh, characterize what shape, what form it seems to be taking uh-huh. as these little clouds of dukkha come across your your screen, you know. And I'll bet, you know, I mean, sometimes this is sort of the course workbook practice. You know, you just sit down and go within it, or in Steps to Knowledge you'll do the same thing. You'll realize, okay, let me go within my mind and, and develop the capacity to be silent and the capacity to be present with whatever is in there. Right. But what is in there? Mm. And then so you start out by really looking at what is in there. And if you do, you know, initially, before you get any mind training, this kind of, this is the kind of stuff you're gonna take your your emotional temperature. Realize, yeah, this is this is festering, this is like unresolved, this is kinda like keeps cropping up, my little ego tells me that that, I should not accept this, I should do something about that, they're not the things that I compromise, they're the things, oh, somebody didn't, somebody wasn't respectful of, they didn't, they should, I shouldn't have have allowed them to say this to me, or to do this, or 
to put me in this situation. I mean, all this kind of stuff is coming up all the time. Okay? So, if we're going to talk about detachment from Maya, we have to understand this is Maya. But, you know, so is it, is Maya our nature? Well, it's, it's, it is the way that we, in the physical, we're jammed into this corner by the fact that our perception is distorted. It's distorted by the fact that our five senses don't give us a full knowing of, you know, we don't, our communication with God has been definitely dialed back, you know, when we came into the physical from the non-physical. So, you know, our sense of being separated from God is attended by this, oh, this fact that we don't have that kind of unbroken communication with God that we would have had, you know, because we're in the physical and we think we're separate. And, right, and this... we're not joining, we're not consciously, deliberately joining. Uh-huh. So all of all of this is coming in and all of the chemically mediated, you know, uh, thoughts and emotions and emotion gives rise to thought and or thought gives rise to emotion and all of this stuff is going on. So yeah, we're we're what is that our nature? What okay. Well, who who are we then? Who are what is us? Well, well, if we say this is our nature, who are we? Well, are me, we the body? Are, are, and, and the Course says, no, I am not a body, I am free. So that redefines what's going to be my nature. If I'm free of the body, then I, my nature is not, you know, what is chemically mediated by the body. Well, when the Apostle Paul said the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, and then he lists sins, those sins are describing Roman culture. Right? He put sexual morality and purity at the top of the list. Right. And that's because when Pompey was tell the oh story. Tell the story. When Yeah, they 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 went to in the in the past century all of this awareness has come about. They they actually dug Pompey up, got rid of all of the the ash and stuff out of there and exposed, you know, the city as it had been and the walls of the buildings and the art on the walls and they realized wow, you know, this is kind of embarrassing, what are we to do with this this is really, you know, a little bit rank and gross so I don't know if we really want to have this there when we start opening it to tours and have people coming through here they're going to be really offended by seeing this stuff, so they actually took it away so they uh, there there would be a portico you'd come to the to the front of the building and you'd go to have a little entrance into your building and here would be this whole mural of you know sexual orgies orgies yeah like wow like are you kidding me this is what i'm supposed to the come outside in here of the for? house the outside of the building yeah it's so, like so are somebody we coming in here to go to an orgy are we supposed yeah. to be preparing for an orgy are we here because this is salient, this place, the, the expectation of what's going to go on. Right. And this was Roman culture. Yeah. And this was what the Apostle yeah. Paul was speaking against. So when he said the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, the key word there are acts. Now you said that emotions give rise to thought and thought gives rise to emotions. Both things happen. But usually it's think, feel, do. We think something, 
or believe something, and it then gives rise to the emotion because we're telling ourselves that the world should be different than it is. We start to get angry, the emotions come, and then we take action. So it's usually think, feel, do. Okay, and then when you do, that's when the, that's the, that's what he's talking about—the acts of the sinful nature. It's the doing, and that and you are not defined by what you do. I'm sorry, you are not defined by what you, you do. You don't have what you do. You don't even have what you get in the physical. What you have is what you are. Okay, there, and we have to make a, a very clear distinction between what you do. And what you are. Yes. So he's conf- the, this whole thing got confused when he says the acts of the sinful nature. Okay, wait a minute. Um, what we what, what, the acts of a of a, uh, a mind that's been corrupted by selfishness is obvious. And then he lists sexual morality, impurity, blah blah blah. And he's talking about Roman culture here. Okay. So there's a difference between saying the acts of a mind that's been corrupted by selfishness versus an act of a sinful nature. The sinful nature suggests that it's inborn in you, that you can't escape it, that it's there. And people have come to this conclusion because Paul also said, you know, the good that I want to do, I don't do, and the, and the bad that I don't want to do, I find myself still doing. So this is described as the sinful nature. This is people, and I think this is a misinterpretation. Well, the, the, what results from this in a linear fashion then is judgment. Judgment becomes appropriate because then you say, "Okay, I see you doing this, and so this is what you are." So uh, you did not uh, demonstrate good character. So you are not of good character. You are of bad character. And there's a lot of, you know, I mean, there are people out there now, you know, saying this, talking about integrity is not, you know, integrity is not your being. You are not a beingness of perfect integrity. You are actually integrity is like your track record. How what have you done to prove to me uh, your worth? To prove to me your right to be thought of highly, your right to be included and to be loved in any way, well, without a- judgment that says you were less than, you were inadequate. You were completely uh, a dog, a mongrel, because you didn't have integrity. You didn't display integrity by doing this and doing that and doing this and doing that so that I can make the judgment at the end of it that you have integrity. Right, so this idea of virtue and character and, uh, and integrity is what you're saying is understood as what you do, uh, your behavior. And so if you had bad behavior... If you believe that you are a body, and that this is your life, this is, this is life right here, the little room, the little environment you're in, the little experience that you're having in the physical, this is, you're, you're a body, okay? So what you do, that's what you are. Yeah. You are a person, then, that, that functions this way and does this according to what you should have done and what you shouldn't have done. Your trajectory is either more what it should be or more what it shouldn't be. Right, so there's judgment going on there uh, as to whether you have good character now, or... Now, who gets to be in the position, in the, in the cat seat? Who gets to sit in the seat of judgment? Mm-hmm. Well, the thing is... Oh, you know who does? Hmm. God most high. Well, 
That's correct, but uh, in this fallen world, in this is referred to as the fallen world, I just call it the upside down world because things are upside down. You don't, they don't recognize that uh, that uh, I've seen tattoos in jail. People have a tattoo. No one can judge me but God. Yeah, that's I've seen that many times and places. And now that there there is a certain truth to this. When you look at it from a course perspective, you yes. see this. But, but uh, so the thing is outside of the course perspective when you're operating within the Judeo-Christian concept and the theology that's been handed down with this idea of being, having an inborn sinful nature that you're basically bad you're basically born into sin you're evil okay and you're going to have to struggle and you keep proving it because you can't seem to get up to a high enough level to prove to me something different your virtue is never good enough your character is never good enough and, it, and if you do convince other people by doing good things and, and being virtuous and having integrity, so-called, there's still this insecurity within yourself that you don't have integrity in your essence. So, so you know, the whole way that you can love, how can you love yourself when you know you don't have right. integrity? Right. Well, you don't need to love yourself that much. You can <laughs> be tempered and qualified because uh, you are off, uh, awfully compromised and awfully... Oh, yeah. Awfully inadequate. No, okay. your your judgment, your 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 your. And I don't need to. I don't need to love you unconditionally because it wouldn't be right. Because mm-hmm. you just don't measure up. Well, there's this thing about reciprocal. Uh, this is in most people, particularly conservative-minded. You know, uh, I would say anybody who votes Republican, they are one of their values is this idea of being reciprocal. We'll give you charity and we'll help you, but you have to do something for us. You have to learn to speak English, or we'll let you into the country, but you have to do something back. You have to contribute. So as long as the other person, well, that's can, that's that's the way that the worldview is of forgiveness. Yeah, it's the, like I'm not saying you're not guilty. I'm not saying that it doesn't matter that that you put me through this. Or you put all of us through this, or whatever it was. You were less than. I still know you're less than. Still make that judgment that you're, like, damaged goods. But walking wounded, okay, but the thing is, I'll forgive you. I'll choose to overlook that. Okay, that'll be loving, that'll be forgiveness. And God is calling upon me to give you forgiveness. Seventy times seven, I am to forgive you. So I'm, let's put that aside. We'll just forget about that. Well, they don't forget. No, they, we won't forget yeah, it. Yeah. But we'll forget about carrying that judgment forward at some level. Yes. So it's like we're suspending judgment, is right. what it is. So it's we're calling that forgiveness, but we're but it's not unconditional because we're expecting a reciprocal thing. We're expecting you to then change now, your behavior. And, now, if you take that person that just said that, you do an emotional autopsy on them right now. <laughs> okay. What are their emotions about this? They're still in grievance about what you did. Or what you're going to do. But they're saying, and what you're going to do. Right. Yeah, and. Very nervous okay, about that. Yeah. yeah. But they're calling themselves forgiving. Right. You. Yeah. Okay, did but, they forgive anything? Well, the thing is, if if the pattern of behavior that they want you to stop, and that they're, they're saying, I forgive you, because now you have to reciprocate, and the reciprocation oh, yeah. is, I'm going to oh, yeah, stop yeah. behaving the way you exactly. don't want me to. Exactly. But if you do continue to behave then I haven't forgotten that there's a pattern here and now I'm gonna I'm gonna put my foot down and you know if this continues I'm calling in in putting my foot down I'm going to give you a conditional kind of love oh yeah yeah we're gonna condition love upon how deserving of it I find you to be yeah now the course perspective about forgiveness is that that opens the door for you to be 
be able to cross the bridge that Christ has built for you to go into heaven. To be able to actually meet head on and, and integrate yourself in all of your awareness and experience. Assume, resume your identity of who you are on the other side. Of what you were created as. What the truth of you. The truth of your being. All of this, you can leave a place where you're cut off and unaware. And you can go to a place because of the atonement. Because of an understanding and an acceptance of, you know, basically... Christ having shared his vision of you and as well as everything else. Uh, you know, so that their forgiveness is a recognition of this and an, and an embracement of this and a fulfillment of this in the here and now. To say, uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not just saying it's okay that you did what you did. Uh, well, I, I know what you did. I don't forget it, and I don't like it still, but I'm going to say, okay, we'll just go on from here. We'll just put that aside, and we'll just go on from here. But we'll still be able to judge you based on, you know, but, but we'll just go forward. Okay, the Course is saying you're not going forward in any kind of a way where that will lead you to heaven, because you are not able to love unconditionally. Uh, to love unconditionally, to know love, and to live love, requires a forgiveness that says, there was nothing here that is salient to me, that brings up anything for me, that matters to me, it was real only in my distorted perception, and actually... I let it fall away as being of no significance. Right. Now, this is why in Buddhism you find a lot of times a meditation about death. They don't, they're not afraid to meditate on death, to think about death, and because they, they come to a, a resolution that death is a, a part of life and they're at peace with it, okay? This well, is, yeah. that, this is, that, that awareness of death, I don't think it's an extinguishment uh, as it's viewed in the West. In a, in a sort right. of Judeo-Christian way, right. I don't think that it's a constant threat and a right. constant fear. Right. It's it's seen as a natural transition. That's and progression. right. Right. So you know when the Chinese were taking over Tibet, uh, one of the soldiers put a sword to a guy. He was going around slicing people up and killing them. And he walks up to this monk who was standing in the doorway to prevent them from entering the temple. And he puts the sword to his stomach and he says. You don't know who I am. I can run this sword through your belly. And the response of the immediate, you know, without hesitation, the response of the monk is, you don't know who I am. I would let you. Now, compare and contrast that to somebody who is holding on to grievances and can't forgive, but says that they're forgiving you, but still they're expecting you to reciprocate. And if you don't, then the judgment's going to come back full, full, full force. Okay, there's a big difference between these two well, things. The difference for me is that forgiveness is compromised, mm -hmm. love is compromised. Yep. You don't know what these things are, and you're not <laughs> because you are cherishing the salience of judgment. Yeah, yeah. Judgment is that shield that you're putting up oh, so yeah. you do not see mm -hmm. the object that you're judging and that you're castigating as less than. You do not see them. 
So how do you even make an accurate judgment of them? You do not know what they are. Well, the thing is, you're clinging to life. And when I say clinging to life, I mean you want life to be on your terms the way you want it, you know, to be comfortable, you're to be happy. You're clinging to control. That's control. But it's ultimately, it's this fear of death, isn't it? Because it's, that's the opposite of you controlling your life. You want to you want to live another day. The ego wants to live another day. It's so important to live another day. Oh, put me on a respirator because I need to live another day. You know, put my consciousness into a computer because I want to live forever. What? How ridiculous is that? And this is the Western mindset. It's like I must live another day. You know, we're going to struggle. And str- in the physical. In the struggle, in the physical. Yeah. You know, we're going to struggle, struggle, struggle with our sinful nature and blah, blah, blah. But... But wait a minute. Why now. would you even want to do that? Well, they don't see any alternative outside of yeah. the struggle. Yeah. In, 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 in the non-physical. Right. There, well, there's no that, struggle going on. Right. Well, that leads me into the Why next chapter. Why would you prefer that yeah. kind of struggle and that kind of compromise right. and that kind of frustration and that lack of peace and that constant turmoil? Right. So now I'm going back to to Mortimer J. Adler's book, The Ten Philosophical Mistakes, and we just talked about human nature. That was very in-depth conversation. Now let's move to chapter 9, Human Society. Do you see how we've, what we've talked about leads into this? You asked the question, you know, why would somebody want to struggle? Well, here's the answer. Human Society. That's why they want to struggle? Yes. How so? Because there's a society, there's a peer pressure, there's an expectation. I don't want to be, I don't want to be taken advantage of. You know, I'm gonna have to put my foot down because you're taking advantage of me, and I'm not liking that. And the reason I'm not liking that is because it reflects bad on my neighbor. What are my neighbors gonna think of me? You know, what are other people gonna think of me? What is society gonna think of me? This is really important. Well, they're gonna give you a reputation, and it's no oh. good, is it? Because you've already besmirched it because they <laughs> saw that. Your little foo-foo did something they didn't like, and now they attributed that to you. You had a visitor that played the music too loud, and the popo came, and uh, now your character is besmirched. Right. Right. Okay. So you, uh, what are they gonna? Your reputation is already yes. damaged. Yes. So you know now you're focused on what they think of you. Well, that's what they think. Well, the the whole thing that we're calling integrity and character and virtue is just a mask that you put on for other people. It's there. You have to because you can't. You know that a lot of other people's opinions are bullshit, but nevertheless, you're going. You don't. You know that you don't have integrity. You're convinced you don't have integrity, so you have to try really hard to put up this front of integrity of character. And you know nobody but how takes are advantage people of me. Going to clean your slate? How are they going <laughs> to give you a chance to uh, start afresh? And if they don't, how are you going to change? Oh, you're stuck. Because peer pressure and, and the social element, what you think other people think about you, what you want other people to think about you becomes like a big issue here. And like take the situation that's unfolding right now with the coronavirus. You know, if, if, if there was a simple solution to say I have a, a malaria vaccine and we can just deliver this and it has off-brand use and we can use it for treatment, it's going to cut down how, pe- how many people die, okay, then... The nurse that has that has to go to the doctor, and the doctor has to get political approval from the hospital staff, and the hospital staff says, well, we're not, you know, the FDA has to approve it, and then the FDA says, well, we don't want to approve it because it hasn't been tested, blah, 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 and then a president steps in and says, well, I'm the president, we're going to do this. Okay, but some presidents would have to uh, would have to go along with the system, wouldn't they? Because it's the peer pressure. So, but the, But maybe the peer pressure is from the voters. So he's looking at 
you know, the, the president's job is to is a political job. He has to bullshit. He has to present bullshit all the time. To to and so the further you get from the problem, the actual problem could be fixed by the nurse, and it could be done. Okay, but there's this whole process, and every time you go up the step on this process, there's more bullshit. More bullshit and more bullshit until you get to the top, and that's the guy who's the decider, and he's going to decide how to present what we're going to do. In a, and he's going to have to bullshit somebody. He's going to have to bullshit the people. He's going to have to bullshit the, you know, he's going to have to present. Well, that's the cost of authority, false authority. Yeah, this is false authority, and that's how the chain of false. This is how our system is built, like a pyramid. It's a system of false authority, and you have a few people at the top with the power, and everything has to come top down. But what we need is a society that's bottom up. You know, we need to solve. If if, a, if you have a leaky faucet, you know, get a get a plumber in there. Now, why would the plumber have to go to his boss to get approval, and then the, that boss has to go to another person to get approval? It just it doesn't make any damn sense. You know what I mean? The way that's structured. I mean, you can't. That's it's very fragile. Like you know, hospitals only have so many beds for an emergency situation. So when it's overwhelmed, like a coronavirus or whatever, then the fragile system breaks, and that affects other systems because they're interconnected, and pretty soon your whole economy is collapsing. You know what I mean? And so we're seeing this all over the world. And when you compare and contrast different countries, you find that some countries are better equipped to deal with this crisis than others, like Singapore. is the best place right now to handle the crisis. Why? Because they have more of a bottom-up culture. But when you have a top-down, you know, like China, for example, they wanted to deny that there was a problem because they were concerned about what other people thought. They, they didn't were, even want to see that people yeah. were dying or how many were no. dying. Because, again, it's the social element. They're concerned about how they're viewed by the world. And once they realized that it was a problem, then they immediately switched into the tyrannical mode of imposing harsh... You know, they literally welded people into their apartment, welded the door shut so they couldn't get out. They literally grabbed people off the street and, and put them in a forced quarantine. They, communism and it's showed its teeth, okay? And so it went from one to the other. But why? Because they were concerned about how other people viewed them. It's no different than a man who uh, doesn't know his neighbors, but he's concerned about what they think of him, and they don't. He doesn't want to be taken advantage of. He doesn't because that would reflect badly on the people. The neighbors would think bad of him. You know what I mean? It's the same dynamic at work. So we we've talked about the human nature. Now we're talking about human society. Do you see what I'm talking about? Do you recognize the problem? Well, society will bear its fangs at you if you are not complicit in. Com- and showing that you deserve some kind of minimal compromised acceptance and inclusion. You know, that's that's how that's going to work. So, once again, is there going to be peace? Is there going to be love? Is there going to be joy? Is there going to be inclusion and belonging? Is there going to be community? And, you know, is there really going to be a deep level of contentment in this. I don't care how long you force yourself to live in a body. Is there ever going to be a complete resolution to this? No, of course not. So getting back to the word Israel and the and the idea of struggling with God, what is the correct uh, concept or idea as to what it means to struggle with God? What? Why? Why? Okay. To struggle with God is to struggle with yourself. Okay. Okay, that's that's actually what that is, because who are you? You are an extension of God Most High. And and you are told in the Course, again and again, is the statement, I remain as God created me. Why would that be? Because God, 
creates that which is eternal and does not change and cannot change, cannot be changed. This is what Jesus tells us in the Course, very specifically. Cannot change. I can't change it. You can't change it. The, the whole city or country or world can't change it. Uh-huh. So, what we are has to be what how we were created as. That's what we are. Our true identity. That's our so, identity. So when we talk about integrity, we're saying that that's uh, that, that the soul has integrity. It has value. You, you, it doesn't have to prove itself to yeah, anybody. Right. It doesn't ever have to face judgment from anyone. And God himself has said, what is my judgment? What is the last judgment? This comes up in the in the Course. What is the last judgment? The last judgment is, uh, basically, <laughs> you remain as God created you. Forgiveness is, is that all of these Heaven things... Heaven doesn't even have forgiveness. It doesn't yeah, know forgiveness. It yeah. doesn't need forgiveness. Yeah, yeah it's... Uh... There's no attachment to the Maya or illusion. Now, when the people, drama, in the from what a Judeo-Christian Western perspective, fear that they're going to cross over, they get on their deathbed and they get down and say, "Oh God, please forgive me, please forgive me, and allow me to come into Your presence and to dwell with Thee." You know, like I know that I'm not worthy, right? But in Your mercy, please make room somehow. Make exceptions somehow. Right. It must become a a certain surprise for them to end up on the other side and realize that their so-called sinful nature is not even present. Well, I I think this, you know, the Gnostics (laughs) called this world terror, but I think that for such people that have become habituated and totally subservient to that world, you know, of struggle... When they are out, they find no struggle, and they find themselves full-on present with God without any ability to struggle or anything to struggle about. The impetus is no longer present. Well, it could go that way. It probably, you would think it would go that way. That's how I experienced it. For me, I wanted that. But it, it seems to me that from... Other people's reports of crossing over, and other people's—they wanted to withdraw. They, oh, in the worst way. They were scared to death. Right. They were so uncomfortable. Right. It was terror for them. Yeah. Well, the awesomeness of God is a terror, terrifying thing. You know what does it say in the scripture? You know that. Um, you know that. I can't remember the quote exactly. Something about the terror of facing God. You know. Um, so, yeah, the, I think that but we've created the terror facing God, haven't we? Well, it isn't. It isn't an actual fact that you know you could say, well, God is terrible. You know, right? Okay, yeah. in terms of just the just the force, just the magnitude. Okay, you could say, well, that's terrible. Meaning, maybe you'd say, well. Awesome or terrible? Yeah, yeah. Like totally awesome, God. Okay, but it doesn't mean that it's terror-producing. There's nothing inherently an attribute of God that produces terror. Right. Well, 
what does produce terror is the is the ego manifestations that we have in the physical that are so you know the fear and the insecurity and the doubt and the the self-loathing all of these things at the core of our being uh, that we can't seem to let go or relinquish we struggle to to look good to other people we, we want to put on a good face of integrity and virtue and character and don't let somebody get over on you and don't you know protect your property and uh you know save don't faith. don't save face and don't let anybody trespass and you know don't get into my space and don't touch me if i haven't given you a permission to touch me and on and on and on i mean some of this stuff is makes sense when you're living in the physical world but the problem is that you you created a narrative and a story for yourself around it that is based on uh, beliefs that are uh, misbeliefs there and so what I'm saying is that we need to go beyond belief okay and so what is beyond belief it is to step into beauty okay there's no you can step into beauty what belief where is the belief in something that is good or the belief in something that is true that is no longer present or necessary you can step into beauty like the five senses that i said i i felt after my therapy session i i remember i stopped and i said okay what am i tasting oh i'm tasting that berry that turns sweet things uh, sour things sweet oh you know i'm i'm hearing um, i'm hearing the the water crashing against the rocks in kodiak alaska and remembering what it was like to that beauty of being there i i remember the smell the fragrance of that blossom that kind of was erotic i remember the uh, i re- I, I'm, I'm i was in the touching the bark of the tree along the bank of the river after the rain collecting the mushrooms and the fiddlehead ferns i remember you know seeing clouds out the window of an airplane and how beautiful those puffy clouds were i felt like it was in heaven and when i put all those five senses together it was just this sense of of nirvana a sense of being in this there, there's a, a, a freedom to get in touch with you know your unfettered uh, unlimited self at that point from from a physical perspective it sounds like to me I just did this brief little exercise meditation if you will um, that I was instructed to do and that's what came of it okay and he, he suggested I do it before work and after work and can kind of compare and contrast and you know to report back to him how it was going. But this first time I did it, it was like I really stepped into beauty. And it was because I was embodying the experience. But my, my body was not my enemy. I was allowing my body to become the vehicle for experiencing beauty. Because and I, we just did a podcast the other day and you said, well, I don't really taste and I don't right. really enjoy food. I right. don't really enjoy music. I don't... Right enjoy nature i don't enjoy anything that's right so i'm i'm really i cut myself off from beauty because i was so far into the left brain and being analytical and trying to find out what's the right doctrine in christianity what's the right theology what should i believe what should i teach you know this whole thing of structure you know uh, concept that i get and then i oscillate between that and and skepticism sometimes i'll go into the my agnostic phase or my atheist phase where i reject everything and then i'm looking at science and i'm like trying to find the truth and i'm all about you know conspiracy theories and what have you so the, the there's this oscillation back and forth i don't know where i think the conspiracy comes more from the structure side to be honest with you but this but then i go into the skeptic phase and i say all these conspiracy theories i don't need to think about that that's that's just that's just psychosis i and then i i, I self analyze myself and i say oh everything i believe is is false but then in that space of skepticism i still have beliefs and their faults 
So it's like you can't escape this. You can bounce back and forth between one false authority or the other. You can you can you can be a member of the blue church or the red religion. It doesn't matter. You can view them as the enemy and you can fight against them or you can switch sides and then, you know, convert to the other and then fight the other side, but it's this constant battle back and forth and it's always about having and doing. And it, what's being missed here is the being and to have the being, you can use your five senses to connect with the beauty that is the world we live in. And the body can connect with that beauty. And it doesn't have anything to do with what is good and what is true. That's all just a bunch of other people's bullshit that you're trying to integrate into yourself so that you can have some kind of a social interaction with people so you can be accepted so they can see you as a good person and they can say you're a good person. Well, why? Because I'm, I'm integrated into society? Because I've been able to like put forward a front that, that's acceptable? That enables you to pass muster and yeah. no judgment. Yeah. The, the fact is, on the other side, the truth <laughs> of you is you are good and you are true. The essence of you is what's remaining. All the rest of the Maya has been stripped away. And but why would that terrify people? Why would somebody want to return to the body? Why? Are, I mean, I, I guess I kind of understand it. Well, there's salience here. There's salience to be grasped. Right. There's power plays to be made. Oh, right. By judging other people as being less than and enforcing oh. a lack of love on them. Right. Right. There's the forty-six power laws of power, and you know you can't let go of that because that's what's going to give you what you want, even though it never does. And, you know, I mean, so you go back into the reciprocal narrowing and your addictions and your depression because that's salient. Yeah, part of it. You're, you're, yeah, you're depressed. Yeah, you're limited. But <laughs> yeah. you can find a way to make, make the most work. of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's salient to you. It's familiar yeah, to you. Yeah, that's, right. that's how you find it. You find what's oh, yeah, salient. Yeah, what's unfamiliar is your goodness on the other side. Well, and when you're confronted with that, that's a terror, isn't it? It is a terror because it creates conflict and it creates shame and guilt. You're not supposed to think that. You just had a thought that you weren't supposed to think. You were, you, you're unworthy of your goodness. Once again, yeah, it's making you more unworthy yeah. and it's yeah. making you more right. uh, likely to get censure and more deserving <laughs> of bad judgment. Yeah, more be- deserving of lack of love. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so human society plays a big role in how fucked up we are. You know what I mean? So now I'm going to move on to the tenth chapter. He said the ten philosophical how mistakes. How many chapters are? This there? is the last one. There's ten. Ten philosophical mistakes. We're at the last one. Here it is. Uh, I haven't even read these at all before we started this podcast. I have no idea it would what's be interesting in this. for you to read. Them <laughs> it would be all right. So here's the tenth one: human existence. Okay, so he's saying that there's a philosophical mistake about human existence. And isn't that what we've been saying all along? Yeah.